0: Thank you, Rachel. Now, I am not much for reality TV, but each year, uh, for three weeks, we lovingly tune into Spring Watch, and that's the best reality TV. And that's where the words of Cecil Francis Alexander's famous hymn really come to life. Each little flower that opens, each little bird that sings, he made their glowing colours, he made their tiny wings. And there are amazing marvels of the creative hand of God right under your nose. So if you haven't watched Spring Watch, Summer Watch, Autumn Watch, Winter Watch, I would commend it to you. But sadly also, the phrase nature red in tooth and claw is also appropriate. And this year, at the beginning of the Spring Watch season, there were two nests. One was a yellow hammer. If you don't know what a yellow hammer is, it's a bit like a canary. And one was a white-throat, which is a small warbler. Okay, so it's a little bird, right? For those of you not too familiar with these things. And um, both of these pairs of birds, parent birds, paired up, found the spot, lovingly created the home, the nest for the eggs that the female laid and then the little chicks hatch and you began to watch them grow and develop and those parents were attentive to every tiny detail they were passionately committed to the welfare of their young, of their offspring but suddenly on camera a weasel appeared from out of nowhere and pillaged both nests all the chicks were gone and that was desperately sad. But as the ironclad Mr. Packham pointed out, the weasel had a family of her own to feed. I just hope this kind of thing is sorted out on the new earth. Um, I'm sure it will be. Now, Paul is passionately committed to his spiritual offspring. There were no Christians in Corinth before Paul went there. I think when you understand that, you understand something of the language and the heart ache that paul is expressing in this letter we've been considering on sunday evenings this was the church that under god and through the power of the gospel he gave birth to and this letter is all about paul's intense and deep-seated passion to protect those spiritual chicks that had hatched in an environment where there were many weasels that would pillage the nest of that local church He's not mucking about in this letter. He's genuinely concerned about his spiritual children. Because it was a city where the worship of Aphrodite, through temple prostitution, was widespread. When a first century playwright wanted to represent a drunkard or somebody who was lecherous, they simply said that he came from Corinth. And it was into this pagan culture that Paul had gone to preach and a church came into being. And there are weasels in Corinth. The weasels of that culture, you see, the filth, the awful worldliness, and we know Paul speaks about that elsewhere. But there were the subtler weasels. Those that were corrupting the church from within, and Paul sees these false teachers, false apostles, or hyperapostles, as we shall see in a minute, as a clear and present danger. So the letter is written against an attack on the gospel. Paul isn't interested in protecting his own reputation, but he, his preaching, and the gospel are inextricably linked. And the Corinthians seem not to like Paul's ministry of the cross, which they thought of as weak, or his method, which they really thought was underwhelming, to say the least. Some had started to follow the new kids on the block, these so-called super or hyper apostles. So we come to another of these passages where Paul's heart is revealed for the gospel, for those to whom he preached it, for those in whom it had an effect, his spiritual children now the passage divides quite easily into four paragraphs so we'll take them one by one in the next few minutes first of all Paul has a fear he has a fear look in verses one to four you see the false teachers who had crept into the Corinthian church were saying things like this to them how do you put up with that old fool That explains the beginning of the first verse. I hope you will put up with a little more of my foolishness, but you're already doing that. Well, you are doing it, he says, and I'm asking you to put up with this old fool just a little bit longer. Just as in verse 4, he says, Look, if other teachers come with other messages, you put up with them, so you just put up with this old boy a little bit longer. Paul was afraid. Now, here, he likens himself to a father. He has a daughter. She's grown up to maturity. Okay, so you have a daughter and you've introduced her to this very fine young man. Every father's joy is to do that, to see his daughter pairing up with a very fine young man. And he's excellent in every way and she's fallen in love with him. And they are engaged, they are betrothed. It's firmer than our our engagement, a betrothal, a promise to marry. Now this husband is going to look after her. He's going to care for her. He's going to provide for her. He's never going to let her down, never be unfaithful, never be cruel. Now you know she's feisty, but he will lead her and be firm with her, ever kind. He is the perfect husband. The wedding has been set and the date is in sight. But Paul has a fear. He has a fear because there are other young men circling. Real flash Harries. One's got an LDTT convertible, one's got a Triumph stag. One can get her tickets for Ed Sheeran, or if, or if or she'd prefer it, the opera or the ballet. He's got plenty of money, and this guy as well. And Beguiling, dazzling. And the fear is that she will be swayed and attracted to one of these young bucks. That's the picture Paul has in mind in verses 1 to 4. The Corinthians who have been converted under his ministry, his spiritual children, his daughter if you like, he thinks of them as betrothed to the Lord Jesus Christ and he wants them to love him. And all any Christian worker wants for their congregation is that they will love Christ. Wasn't that clearly spelled out for us this morning? That we love Christ not only best of all, but all in all. That's what he wants for them. That their love for Christ will be pure and undivided. That they will never be taken away from what he calls their sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The end of verse 3. That They have just one great passion in their lives, in their hearts, all the time, every day, and it is to please the Lord Jesus, to own the Lord Jesus, that they'll be taken up with him. But Paul is afraid, because he knows that when people come with another gospel, it's not just a question of a different angle, or a different nuance, or a different insight. There's only one valid gospel, and that is the gospel that Christ revealed, And if someone comes in with another gospel, you listen to it, you believe it, you follow it, and of course, what happens? You lose your love for the Lord Jesus Christ, your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's Paul's fear. I promised you to one husband. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the snake's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. He is afraid. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, he says. Not a jealousy that burns, that wants them to be destroyed but it burns for their good. I promised you to one husband, untouched, untainted by other loves. I am afraid, says Paul. The devil is very clever, says Paul. There was Eve, the perfect woman in the garden, uncorrupted. Satan spoke, she was fooled. Here they are, the false teachers in Corinth. They speak, you can be fooled. And they would stand at the front, they would talk about Jesus. But at the end of the day, you know, Jesus is only a word, J-E-S-U-S. They used that word, but that word did not have the same content as when Paul preached. So although they were using the same word and talking about Jesus, they were actually preaching another Jesus. Paul says that when people do that, you listen, you're taken in. Sometimes when these people speak, he says there's a whole different spirit coming in. It's not the Holy Spirit. You know, you can go to all sorts of different meetings and find all sorts of different spirits. Let me give you three examples. I got for my birthday a ticket to see four ancient, decrepit, almost dead old rockers at the Twickening Stadium a fortnight ago. Now, why 60,000 people want to go and see the stones, I don't know, but we did... And I have to say, it was great. There was a spirit in that meeting. I remember some years ago, Eleanor and I went to Spring Harvest and we heard a chap called uh, Tony Campolo speak. Incredibly compelling, very powerful. But I have to say, preached a different Jesus. We can go to June's lounge or to Richard and Kay's on a Tuesday evening half a dozen, eight of us around God's word praying, the Holy Spirit is in that meeting. And Paul is concerned about a different spirit that is coming in. Which meeting has the presence of the Holy Spirit? If you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, you are taken in by it. A different gospel from the one that saves you. The one that saves you is Christ crucified, buried and risen, which I preached. That he died for your sins according to the scriptures. And if somebody comes with a different gospel, you give it a hearing. That's Paul's fear. Now the lesson for us is clear, I think. When we teach the children, when we teach in Adventurers and Fusion and JF, we need to train our children to think about what is being taught rather than be impressed by who is doing the teaching. And even our little ones need to think about what they're hearing rather than the person who's actually teaching them. When any of us preach and teach in the church, you need to concentrate on what is being taught, not on the charisma or the winsomeness of the preacher. Not be dazzled by personality. And when a preacher preaches in our church, we fix our minds and hearts on the content of what is being communicated and conveyed, rather than anything else relating to the preacher, because it is the content which counts. Because when the content is wrong, people will inevitably lose their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Ben, in our prayer meeting before the service, prayed that the Lord would enable us to spot a fake a mile off. False teaching leads to false loves we have a little work christian union and um, it's a bit of a ragtag and bobtail group i tell you and uh, people are very well meaning but they they haven't been in churches like ours and it would be very easy to be very critical and hard on some of them who've had a vision of this or done that but what I and another colleague try and do is just bring them back to the Bible and what the Bible says and what is the word of God saying. Now that was Paul's fear that another gospel, another spirit was coming in and that his precious spiritual daughter was being attracted to these other young men if you see what I mean. The second paragraph is five and six. It's a short one. I'll read it to you. But I don't think that I'm at least inferior to these super apostles. I may not be a trained speaker, says Paul, but I do have knowledge. We've made this perfectly clear to you in every way. So here is a comparison. We've had Paul's fear. Now he makes a comparison. I will just not allow these super apostles to think that they are better than I am. I will not allow the thought that they are in any way superior to me, says this apostle of Jesus Christ. They think of themselves as a cut above the others. And when Paul refers to these super apostles, he used the word hyper. Hyper apostles. No one else is in the same league as them. In a week or two, we'll be in France and we will be looking for hyperu rather than superu, because hyperu is a make of hypermarket. Superu is a smaller kind of supermarket. It's the Yperu where you get the best cheeses and the best cold meats and everything. The very best in French cuisine can be bought at Yperu, a hypermarket, the biggest and best and worthy of special attention. But Paul, no, he's just a convenience store. And nobody really shops there. No, come to the hypermarket where you can get anything and everything. And the philosophy of these hyper-apostles was this. You must have power, and when you have power, God will top you up. But look at Paul. Really? Look at him. Weak, vulnerable, pathetic, short, no presence, boring. But Paul says, it's the gospel, not the preacher, that is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. These, pe- these people were powerful, compelling, eloquent, captivating, but they didn't have the gospel. Now, Paul says here, I may not be a trained speaker. We just have to pop back to ancient Greece to know what he really means by that. Because there were schools of rhetoric. Rhetoric, public speaker, um, speaking, where you, you, you strive to inform or persuade or motivate particular audiences in specific situations. It was a huge thing. In Paul's day, men would train their voices for hours on end like opera singers do today. Different speeds, different tones, different pitches, different tricks. Practice and practice until they could hold an audience spellbound. Apparently, there were 500 devices you could use to improve your public speaking. To sway an audience with any subject, you could talk about mouldy bread and make people cry. That's what they were looking for. A bit like, I think, some of the comedians work really hard today. If you listen to somebody like, I don't know, Michael McIntyre, the amount of work that goes in and the training that goes in for him to to hold an audience of the, the whole of the O2. It's not dissimilar. I've never been to those schools, says Paul. I'm untrained. And it appears that he wasn't a particularly good public speaker. This has come out all the time in the letter. But he says, I know what I'm talking about. I'm not poor in knowledge. When I open my mouth, I don't come out with vapid drivel like the hyper-apostles do. The Lord himself gave me this gospel on the Damascus Road. I don't have the rhetorical flourish that they have, but I do have the message. Everything about me you know through and through, you know what I say to you is true because it's the gospel, not the preacher, that is the power of God. So what's our second lesson? Well, it's very similar to the first. We train our minds and those we teach in the church, our families, those we're reaching out to for the Lord Jesus Christ to think about what is being taught. Not who is teaching it, not how it is being taught, But what is being taught? Now one of the most famous sermons in church history was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was preached by Jonathan Edwards in America in 1741. And that day God used that sermon to produce powerful conviction and repentance among all those who heard it. Many people coming to faith in Christ. It's the most famous sermon of the great awakening in the United States and as I say one of the most famous sermons in Christian history if you google it there's loads of material on that sermon loads but what fascinates me is something I read a while ago about an eyewitness account of Jonathan Edwards as he was preaching one candle hunched over the notes looking through his glasses preaching in a monotone in a thin weedy voice And yet look at the effect that that sermon had for the gospel. Now, of course, the preacher should be the best preacher he can be. And Paul deals with that elsewhere. And it was good to hear from Will. It was good to hear from Danny the other week as well. And we want to train preachers so that they can preach and explain the word of God well. But the salvation of men and women and boys and girls depends on the content of the message, so Paul. So from Paul's pit, from Paul's fear, and Paul's comparison, he now moves to a boast in verses seven to eleven. Now he's writing to people who were offended. This might seem strange, but they were offended that Paul wouldn't take any money from them. Now they wanted to They wanted to pay Paul. A couple of allusions to that in the first letter. It was an issue then. They wanted to give him gifts. They wanted to put money in his hand. He wouldn't accept it. And this wound had been reopened by the false teachers because they wore suits with pockets. They received the collections. They took the money, and Paul didn't. But he did receive money from the Macedonians, those from Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, when they sent him money, he accepted it. When people came from Macedonia, he kept the money that he was given, but he wouldn't receive money from the Corinthians, and so they concluded that he loved the Macedonians and that he didn't love them. And what Paul had done was actually quite rude, because at this time, if you were a philosopher or a preacher, you would you'd live under the patronage of somebody when you taught or preached you would say nice things about them and actually it was a case to a certain extent of he who pays the piper calls the tune and we've had that in Britain until fairly recently now if any of you are familiar with the story Pride and Prejudice there's a nauseating clergyman, the Reverend Collins he's a cousin of the Bennets and he has Lady Catherine de Bourgh as his patron Now, particularly if you watch the the classic BBC six-part serial, that really comes out in the smarmy and obsequious way he goes about talking about Lady Catherine de Bourgh and how wonderful she is and how he was at her table the previous Thursday and if Lizzie Bennet wants to get anywhere, she she needs to seek the favour of Lady Catherine de Bourgh. Or if you're not too familiar with that and you're watching Poldark, think of Osborne Whitworth and his patron is george Legan, and last week he asked for the living at luxulian so you know these men had the power to give clergymen certain livings in the district and uh, a clergyman might look for a very lucrative living you see and both the reverend collins and the reverend whitworth would make every effort in their preaching to please their patrons That's what you did. That kind of thing was happening in Greece. This philosopher was paid by Mr. X. That one by Mr. Y. And as they talked about their patrons and kept them in mind whenever they spoke, to keep in favour with them and keep the wages flowing. But not Paul. He threw accepted customs to the wind and would not accept Corinthian money. And worst of all, Verse 7 Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? They thought he lowered himself because to support himself, he'd work with his hands and whatever else you did in, great, in Greece. If you were anyone, you didn't do a manual job. Adam worked with his hands, he, he tended a perfect garden. The Lord Jesus Christ worked with his hands in the carpenter shop in Nazareth. I remember as a boy hearing an old song, the line goes that Jesus was a carpenter, he worked with the saw and hammer and his hands could make a table strong enough to last forever. It's a bit twee, but the Lord Jesus Christ was a carpenter and he did work with the saw and the hammer for a number of years. (coughs) These Corinthians were so ungodly, they thought working with your hands was at such a lower level than higher activities. Paul worked to support his needs while he preached the gospel unfettered. I remember when I was studying in South Wales, I cannot remember his name and I cannot remember where he went to plant a church, but he was sent out by a church in Loughborough to begin a church in his lounge and to support himself. He was a highly educated man, He got a job as a postman. And certainly that church grew and flourished. But he worked with his hands to support himself so he could preach the gospel. So we can understand verses 7 to 11. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches taking wages from them so I could minister to you. The gospel, you see, has to be preached free from financial influence. You can't pay me, says Paul, and expect me to commend you and say nice things about you and perhaps mollify the message, make it a bit sweeter, a bit less harsh, harsh. Paul's boast was that he preached to them for nothing. He'd ministered to those Corinthians at great personal sacrifice and expense. Totally unlike the hyper-apostles who received payment but did not preach or demonstrate sacrifice at all. When I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I've kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. You think I don't love you? You think I love those from Macedonia and I don't love you? God knows I do. It's a very powerful thing, he says. <coughs> when Daph was praying in the prayer meeting before the service, sometimes they are beautifully intimate times where we pray for what goes on in these meetings. He was praying that everything that we were doing tonight would be in love for the Lord Jesus and for you. And as I stand here tonight, as an elder of this church, I love you. I really, really do. It's a massive privilege to stand here and to talk to you about the Lord Jesus. And I have to pray that I keep on loving those whom God has given me to pray for and to care for. And Daph, I know, and others on the ministry team and the eldership, we feel the same. God knows I do, says Paul. How can you think? How can you think that I don't love you and that I just like the Macedonians and such a playground mentality they had? I certainly won't accept your money now, says Paul. Why? Because these hyper-apostles are saying, we are everything and Paul is more. We are everything Paul is and more. But they're not. Because they never preach the gospel free of charge. And I will pull the rug from under them. I'll cut the ground away from under them. I'll never give them the opportunity to be able to say, they are like me in everything. So, you see, we go from this fear, this comparison, and the boast to finally Paul's exposure. Paul's exposure. Do you want to know their their, their true identity? He says. Well, let me take off their masks because that's what they're wearing. These hyper-apostles are not hyper-apostles at all. They're not even apostles. They're fakes. They're counterfeits. Why? Because they were disagreeable men, because they were awkward, because they were difficult. No, quite the reverse. They were charming. They were great company. They're false apostles because they don't preach the truth. They're deceitful workmen, he says, parading themselves as true ministers of the gospel but deceiving those who listen to them pretending to be apostles of Christ. Now, Paul uses very powerful language in this whole section, and particularly as he comes to the end. But Paul will always be blunt with the false gospel. Now, in Galatians chapter 2, we read that Peter is preaching the true gospel, but doing things which compromise it. So there, Paul challenges him to his face, but he doesn't disown him but look back in Galatians 1 where he talks about false gospels and those who preach them he makes it clear that if anyone preaches another gospel even if it's an angel from heaven that person is to be eternally condemned now that is strong language people who preach another gospel than the gospel of the new testament are not to be treated as Christians even if they take the name because they are false apostles deceitful workmen masquerading as apostles of Christ see the content must be right these people are true to the tactics of their master Paul says Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light now what is the strategy of the devil friends does he come along and say to you and me hi there I'm the devil pleased to meet you no because lies don't work in that way What makes a lie a lie is that it parades itself as the truth. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a lie. It pretends to be the truth. Every false gospel pretends to be the true gospel. Every false minister pretends to be a true minister. Every false church pretends to be the or a true church. They are true to the tactics of their master. So you sit in the congregation, and this amazing speaker holds you spellbound. Brilliant imagery, a rich vein of humour. You're laughing one minute, you're crying the next, but it's not the gospel. I remember as a young youth leader in Horsham, many years ago, ago, going down to Eastbourne Winter Gardens and hearing, at the time, a very famous preacher. And I thought, he was absolutely brilliant. And as we were going back in the minibus, my fellow youth leader, a much older man than me, began very carefully to unpick what was said and just spread that out for me to think about and showed me that what actually had been preached was salvation by works. Satan preaching. Now Paul is so passionate and so concerned because this is so subtle and can be so difficult to spot. It's not surprising then, he says, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. They look so plausible. They're always talking about righteousness, 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 what is right, right, right. Yet it's Satan's servants that are pretending to be ministers of righteousness. But look where they're heading. Their end will be what their actions deserve wickedness can look right error can look true now something happened recently and as I close I'll share this with you you may well be aware of it and read it in the Christian press That Rico Tice who's known to some of us here author of the Christianity Explored course and one of the ministers at All Souls in London has resigned from the Archbishop of Canterbury's and York's task group on evangelism because others on the committee, he says, follow a different religion to him. And Rico said he had a profound disappointment over the way some within the church have pushed for complete inclusion for those in same-sex relationships. He served on that evangelism advisory board for a number of years um, with the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Justin Welby and John Sentamu from York. And talking about why he stepped down, he said, while I was on the Archbishop's Task Groups for Evangelism, and I've been to see him in person on this, Bishop Paul Bays of Liverpool was affirming same-sex relationships, which is putting people on the road to destruction. Now, he was very bold to say that, wasn't he, in the current climate. I don't know how you could submit to his leadership. I had to leave that committee. It's a different religion. Bishop Paul Bayes and I have a different religion and it's around whether scripture is authoritative the content the message Now the response is interesting a spokesman from Lambeth Palace said evangelism and witness is one of archbishop Justin's three personal priorities to which he's deeply and passionately committed the Thy Kingdom Come campaign, which encourages Christians to pray for friends and family members to come to know the love of Jesus Christ for themselves, has seen more than one million people take part around the world. Archbishop said, A prayerful, sensitive, respectful, love-filled renewal of evangelism and witness will renew the whole church. It will renew each of us deeply. There is nothing as wonderful as seeing God at work leading people from darkness to light, evangelism and witness, put us in the middle of what God is doing to bring the word to life now that all sounds so wonderful so plausible but the content of the bible is being interpreted it's being altered and the gospel seriously undermined that is why I have my fear says Paul and that is why we must share Paul's fear friends all of us because when Paul talks about the ministers coming masquerading of angels of light he's not not mucking about they look so good and sound so right they've got all the tricks all the fine speaking but nothing about Calvary that's why I make my comparison says Paul having heard the message of the cross he says I'm afraid you'll be hoodwinked by a message that has no cross in it that's why I won't accept your money Because the gospel I boast about is about grace that is free and salvation that is bought at a great price and you can't buy me or control me or control what I say because you're my patrons. It costs Christ everything. It costs you nothing. And that's why I'm giving this exposure, says Paul, because they say they're the genuine article and many believe they are, but they are not. And all the time undergirding everything he says is the cross, which is foolishness to Greeks, despised, the weakness, the humiliation of the Son of God, which is, of course, the power of God. Here was a bleeding, mutilated, naked, dying, tortured man. And that is how and where sinners are saved. The complete opposite of the slick, eloquent, persuasive, impressive message of the world. The message of the cross is so other, but that is where salvation is. And gospel preaching always has this cross and this redeemer at its centre. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. We thank you that Paul was so passionate. We thank you that we read of his fear, his fear that his precious spiritual children would be hoodwinked, would be led astray to lose their love for you. We thank you, Lord, for how he opens his heart. We thank you how he was not prepared for his message to be fettered by financial influence. We thank you that he was bold and exposed those hyper-apostles in the church in his day with blunt language, identifying them for exactly who they were, servants of Satan. Lord, this is unpalatable language and we would have to perhaps consider speaking about it carefully in other places, but Lord, help us to be bold. And Lord, thank you for Rico Tice and his stand, which cost him. Thank you, Lord, that we can read about that and anybody can read about that. Pray, Lord, that you'll strengthen him for his stand for the truth and authority of your word and of the gospel. So help us each one, Lord, to treasure this gospel and the one who is at the heart of it and the crucified man, which is the place where sinners are saved. Oh, Father, to enrich our hearts and, Lord, help us to go from this place more committed to your truth, but with much more love for you, our Lord and our Master. Amen.